My name is Tom Major, co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall, and this is episode 12 of Herpetological Highlights. And it's all about geckos, specifically Australian geckos, right? Yeah, I mean, you can. it's difficult to encapsulate all the Australian geckos in a short podcast, but um, we're going to give it our very best, aren't we? Well... Yes and no. <laughs> we're going to talk. I mean, really, we're just going to be talking about three different geckos. <laughs> yeah, we are. But they're three of them. And just stick to those. They're three of the very best geckos. Well, they're certainly three of the geckos that have some interesting literature published on them. Yeah, that's true. And in the pictures, they look quite cool. <laughs> that's, that's how we pick species to talk about. We just we just flick through pictures. Are you are you trying oh, to guy, are yeah, you trying to subvert reality? Because that's exactly what we do. <laughs> Keep it down. <laughs> Keep it down. That's how we do the piece of the bi week, at least. We definitely went through a few. We were like, let's scroll down to the photos. No, no come, come on. Species of the bi week. It goes by photos and natural history information. Yeah, and the cool names. Come on. Potentially cool names. And just yes. something which is even remotely relevant to what we're talking about that's been published <laughs> remotely recently. Since 2013. Yeah. yeah, that's basically it. You just click since 2013 on the old Google Scholar and see what appears. Right, so, yeah. Like we said, this is episode 12. We're going to be talking about Australian geckos. Following on from our conversation with John McGrath, who's the gecko wrangler, mm. we thought it would be uh, prudent. Apt. Apt. Apt and prudent to uh, have an episode dedicated to these Australian geckos because geckos we haven't actually touched on at all yet. I mean, we, we talked about them a bit, but we haven't done any explicitly gecko episodes. So, Well, be... apart from episode four that was all about Felsuma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. that, was, that was quite gecko heavy. Common, um, common misconception, the false geckos of the genus Felsuma. <laughs> yeah, no, you are right. <laughs> yeah, I completely spaced on that one. Yeah, we did talk about them at length. <laughs> Um, but so these geckos, ones are different. We're getting some pretty, pretty heavy coverage. <laughs> ben, we're falling apart. <laughs> okay, right. Just so, push through. Right, push these through. ones. They're Australian geckos. They're Australian, different. Australian they geckos. look different. They're different coloured, and they live in a different place. <laughs> so uh, this first paper we're going to talk about is entitled "Spatial Dynamics of the Knob-tailed Gecko Nephrurus stellatus in a Fragmented Agricultural Landscape," published in Landscape Ecology by Driscoll, Whitehead, and Lazari in 2012. Um, yeah, so the focal species of this study is Nephrus stellatus, um, a.k.a. the starred knob-tailed gecko. And um, mm. the reason they're called that is Nephrus, the genus, refers to the kidney-shaped tail, and stellatus means starred. And if you look at one of these little geckos, they are about 9 centimeters total length. They're kind of pinky-purpley on top, uh, with a white belly, they're like countershaded, and they've got these nice, like yellow little bursts all the way down the back and sort of on on the head, and that's where the name Stellatus comes from, the starred pattern. And of course, they've got big, adorable, cute gecko eyes, yeah, like so many other geckos. Yeah, and a freakishly big head. Yes, yes, they do. I mean, yeah, a lot of these sort of, or quite a few of these Australian geckos seem to have larger heads and you'd expect yeah yeah i guess <laughs> it sort of makes them look a bit front heavy yeah i yeah maybe it's to do with their prey being large insects they're kind of like gape limited so they just have massive heads yeah get the job done quick yeah, yeah. so this species um the starred knobtail gecko they are 
oviparous, so they lay eggs, and they have clutches of two eggs. Um, and like we just mentioned, they're kind of generalist insectivores. They're filthy bug eaters. Um, <laughs> they're nocturnal, and uh, they kind of spend a lot of their time in burrows, um, especially during the day. And then if it's a chilly evening, they don't want to come out. They stay in their burrows then as well. Um, there's two populations of these. Like we said, they're Australian geckos. One population is in Western Australia and one is in Southern Australia. Um, and although those two populations are very isolated from each other, uh, they're genetically similar. Um, yeah, so that's kind of mm. a bit of background on these little weird critters. Yeah, and so sort of getting a bit more towards what the paper's about, in terms of habitat use, they are what's known as an early successional species so essentially a species that will return to an area relatively soon after some sort of large-scale disturbance event has occurred. And in the case of Australia, a lot of the time there are bushfires, and these guys take advantage of uh, uh, what's left of bushfires and come back into areas five to ten years later, and, well, or at least are heavily in high abundance five to ten years later, and will come up anything to two years two years later and take advantage of what's uh, what's been left yeah yeah exactly they are kind of like post-fire specialists aren't they and yeah. um yeah i the reasons they like post-fire are quite curious but actually when you think about it it's kind of obvious for them um firstly there's sort of the vegetation is less structured once there's been a fire so you can imagine all the big trees and stuff have just been burnt down and it's relatively um simple sort of like scrubby stuff that comes back first your classic initial successional species the english equivalent mm. the english equivalent to this is like stingy nettles and brambles and that kind of thing um oh, i was thinking of a birch tree that you get after uh after glaci- uh, glaciation a very early successional species there you go yeah but- same same exact idea um so because there's less structure to the vegetation it'll be easier for them to find their prey seemingly and also um Apparently, according to Smith et al. 2012, there are more invertebrates present in a post-fire uh, situation than there are in when it's sort of more complex. So mm. these geckos have kind of a double whammy where it's easier to hunt because there's less obstacles and also there's more invertebrates for them to eat. So they're just coming in for a, an easy free meal? Basically, yeah. They're just the chances of the animal kingdom. And, nice. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, on top of that, not only is their prey easier to catch and there's more of it, but also their surface temperatures of the habitat and the burrow temperatures are also higher in recently burnt areas because obviously more sun is reaching the, the ground where there's less plants to block it. And mm. what this means is that geckos are warmer overall, meaning they can have higher fecundity, so more reproductive success. On top of that, there's also um, faster development of the embryos in the eggs because the ground is warmer. Um, it's mm. A lot of geckos have temperature-dependent sex determination, uh, so this could actually end up post-fire skewing their sex ratios because in a lot of species, different temperatures produce different sex offspring. But um, there's no sort of concrete data on that for this species because it could be that the higher temperatures in the ground skews the ratio of hatchlings towards females, which would kind of be the best scenario to have yeah, that's, bigger that's population. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and then but, have, have quick growth and then you're tied closely to, to a post-fire environment and 
Yeah. That's just reinforced itself over over generations. Yeah. The the trouble is there's yeah. not there's not any like concrete evidence on whether or not that's actually the case for um any species from the whole family that these are in, which is Carphodactylidae. Um there's a good really cool um review paper by Tony Gamble from Marquette University. Uh, he wrote that in 2010 and back then there was no concrete evidence on sex determination by temperature or um heteromorphic sex chromosomes so it's kind of up in the air but there are hobbyists on old forums suggesting that they've incubated eggs at different temperatures and had skewed sex ratios so there's probably going to be something coming out of the the hobby which might suggest that this could could be a thing time will tell i hope so um (laughs) yeah so we've got these geckos living in a post-fire environment and this paper wanted to look at how sort of remaining pockets of this this uh, repeatedly burning forest had different gecko populations in. So it's basically a study on forest fragments and how the geckos are interacting with different fragments and how those fragments are changing populations and what sort of population dynamic is occurring yeah. in our landscape, which is largely agricultural, but has these pockets of good uh, forested gecko habitat. Yeah, that map of the study site is crazy. It's sort of this ginormous um, just area of white, which represents kind of either cereal crops or sheep grazing areas with mm. with just loads of like slices, like many probably hundreds of slices where they, like you say there's just these remnants 92 92 sites they did so at least 92 like fragments yeah. of forest out in amongst uh yeah and there's yeah, sheep, sheep grazing yeah well yeah sheep grazing and then cereal i think they grow a lot of cereal crops and then sheep's great sheep graze the stubble afterwards so it's it's mm. a really inhospitable place for geckos in the intervening areas that aren't sort of remnants and they said for that reason they wouldn't even bother sort of surveying them um yeah so i think there were there were previous bits of work done that was just like this you know no one ever found anything so it's just not worth uh yeah not worth the time and effort <laughs> they yeah. found like a a blind snake or something like that and that was the... yes that's what it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> we found a blind snake it's like yeah no one cares <laughs> <laughs> you might as well have found nothing it's hey man Everybody loves a good blind snake every now and again. They're basically worms. <laughs> I'm, joking. I'm just joking. I'm, joking. I'm just no. trying to say something incendiary. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but like you say, um, yeah, the reason there's all these kind of little patches left over is because they're sort of like hit peaks of sand dunes and where there's loose sand, they can't plant crops. So they just get mm. left as forest or like by roadside verges and things like that. And these are the areas which these geckos who are disturbance specialists may or may not be living in and around that's kind of what the paper was looking at isn't it yes and and how they may be interacting with each other and how viable that population is yeah seeing how i mean yep the the first thing they sort of tried or did first thing you arrive on this site is to quantify all the patches so basically they did lovely bit of gis with uh well i presume just gps is walking around the patches as opposed to anything satellite based by didn't pick up on how they did it, but whatever they did. <laughs> um, <laughs> whatever, move yeah. on. <laughs> well, that's not important. Don't the, get bogged the, down in the details. 
Exactly. <laughs> so they had all these patches and they measured size of patch, uh, distance of patch to the nearest patch, distance of patch to this area of uh, natural reserve that was that was bordering the agricultural land. Yes. Yeah, those two things um, you just said were kind of yeah. their measures of isolation, weren't they? Which is quite key to this paper to see how isolation was affecting the abundance and occurrence of the species. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. Well, I think that was pretty much it. It's just all the sort of metrics to do with size, distance, and spatial arrangement yeah. of these patches in the in the landscape. Yeah, that was because one of the things yeah. they were kind of anticipating maybe seeing, which I had not heard of before, is this idea of mainland island metapopulations. <laughs> I don't know why I said island mm. like that. Mainland island. <laughs> mainland island. Yeah, populations. And uh, they were kind of, there's this theory, uh, which is like pretty well regarded in ecology, that you can have a population, like a big sort of pseudo mainland, uh, which, mm. which in this example would be the big protected nature reserve, and then a series of smaller islands around it, which are small patches of suitable habitat. And the big main island could sustain the, the patches around it by providing some kind of like flow between the two. For, yeah, yeah. Uh, it always reminds me of early urbanizing Europe, uh, with medieval urban centres being a net, uh, net killer. They never, they didn't have a sort of sustainable population, and had to, people had to come from rural areas just to maintain urban centres. Mm, yeah, <laughs> they were so horrible and filled with death. Jeez, wow, <laughs> pretty, pretty dark analogy, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what we were thinking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty spot on. And then you, you kind of touched on the whole idea of like sources and sinks where sometimes yes, there's, there's populations which are only maintained because there's a healthy population adjacent and the occasional wanderer fares off into the wilderness, makes their home for a time on the sink population, and um, but it's not sustainable in of itself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's really cool, all these like metapopulation ideas. Um. Yeah, so should we get on to sort of like their results, what they learned from all their studies? Absolutely, well, yeah. Oh yeah, well, did, did you mention all the surveying they did? They did 92 sites three times each for sort of 10 minutes. Yes, it was quite sort of... Um, what's the... Like... Oh, what's the word? Uh, efficient? Quant- quantity, like just sheer quantity of short sharp surveys with what was it they were using using torches and eye shine for this one right yeah yeah they made it sound like these geckos are pretty easy to find yeah i it just sounded like a really sort of quick easy survey that they could replicate loads and loads and loads and loads of times that's given them this this really good data set that sound there's not many herp species you can go out and do such a sort of rapid, what was it, 10 minute, 10 yeah. to 15 minute survey and get, you know, find find your target species. I know. That's quite, it's, it, it seems quite remarkable. It's really, really cool. And the fact that these are nephrurous geckos that are just littering the ground seemingly everywhere is ridiculous because yeah. they seem so exotic to me. Like they're so cool looking and the fact that they're just all over the place is awesome. Um, dime a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, what, after they did all the surveys and uh, put it into their various models and things. Did they have models? I can't remember. What did they use? <laughs> what did they even do? 
And so they looked at this data. They they looked at the data. And they found out a great many things. <laughs> they had the best data. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no, they did. They used N mixture models. I knew they used models. Um, there we go. Yeah. Um, another. Yeah, that's what they did. And um, yeah, as it turns out, uh, isolation from the nearest inhabited patch, so the distance from another patch where there were geckos, was a really big deal. Uh, in terms of the likelihood of there being geckos on in a patch. Um, so the further away they were from a patch with other geckos, the less likely they were to see geckos. Um, and there was like a sharp dip. If it was more than 300 meters to the nearest patch with geckos, it really started to drop off. So it kind of suggests yeah. that these little geckos will walk about 300 meters into no man's land across sheep fields, uh, but they are hesitant to go much further in search of decent habitat. So the, the geckos have a, like a 600-meter um, ability to just go out on a limb. Yeah. And they reach halfway and they're like, oh, well, I could go on, but I know that I can get back. So yeah. I'll, go, I'll go head on back. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the occasional one who's like, do or die. <laughs> You've come this far. Like, yeah. Uh, and then there was like, uh, yeah, after 900 meters, it was only a 10% chance of finding a gecko. So pretty slim. Um, mm. And, you know, we were talking about the big nature reserve. Yes. That was the distance to the nature reserve was actually kind of counter to what they expected, where the further away they got from the nature reserve, there was actually slightly more likely to be geckos. Yes. I mean, it, it basically suggested that the nature reserve was not working as a serious source because you'd expect just by, you know, uh, I don't know what would be the underlying process that would mean more <laughs> more things closer. That's just one of those classic rules of geography, isn't it? Well, yeah, um, I mean, that would be the mainland island metapopulation theory, wouldn't it? Yeah, but you'd, you'd expect a gradient from it, wouldn't you? Yeah, you Because would. you'd have more geckos moving and it was, they'd sort of fan out as they went. Yeah. there'd be fewer and fewer that would then take an additional movement on top of that an additional movement on top of that and you know off they go so that was all just playing into basically this the nature reserve is not a it's not a source and there is some sort of viable consistent population occurring in the uh, in the fragments and the uh, and the patches in amongst the agriculture right yes yeah they loved spin effects as well didn't they well, that was the sort of control... It seemed to be the controlling... I don't know if controlling is the right word either. But the key variable when it came to sort of predicting where they were going to be and how the patches were connected and stuff. And it might have... They were saying that the patch size themselves for the trees wasn't the best predictor for uh, population actually in that patch. And it was more connected to how good the spinifix... Um, understory was and how well connected that was to other places. Yeah, spin effects is like yeah. the really like spiky, low to the ground grass. It's quite. It looks unpleasant. I've not experienced it, but it looks like. <laughs> but I guess it just provides good ground cover, which is what this species requires. Just like low ground cover, sort of. And probably got a better invertebrate. Yeah. Um, assemblages in there, and then. You're going to be protected from grazing pressure. You're not going to be stamped on by things. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Mm. But just the right amount of homogenous, like, <laughs> which is apparently what they prefer. <laughs> so the geckos. Yeah. 
Well, and and it's probably, you know, getting back to the fire landscape stuff, homogenous is going to be a, a lower structure sort of habitat, most likely, right? Yeah. So it might be replicating a post-fire environment in some ways. Exactly, yeah. And if that's the best they've got, then that's what they're going to take. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's kind of funny because it's not going to be possible to replicate in terms of like managing these patches. There's no way they're going to be able to burn them on rotation. It's just not feasible. It's not practical. So No, uh, th- this and, is... and with the level of fragmentation, it's... it's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd have to just walk around with a... I mean, it would just be, it'd be ridiculous. So, yeah, I guess they're kind of getting the next best thing in surviving. But, of course, the fact that this these patches are sort of permanent, seemingly almost permanently post-fire in their appearance um, sort of suggests that they're not going to be good for many, many other species, which are later successional arrivals. So once the scrubland's built up a bit, if that never has a chance to happen because of the nature of these patches, then... These these geckos are going to be one of the only things that's actually persisting there. Perpetual gecko land. Yeah. Alternatively, they... where nothing can survive but the geckos. <laughs> yeah. Alternatively, <laughs> alternatively, they all develop at the same rate, and the geckos go extinct and from the patches. I don't know how it's working, but well, even if you get patches sort of that, you start losing patches in between, and you start getting even more homogenized uh, grazing. The chances of them losing populations is, is quite considerable, I'd say, because they were suggesting that any population over a kilometre from another patch is, you know, completely detached and um, very vulnerable to just uh, extinction via uh, stochastic variation. So basically a random, well, not, well, it's the Stochastic, stochastic is a really hard word. Stochastic. Yeah. It's sometimes I can say it easily, other times it catches me out. But basically that's a seemingly variable fluctuation but actually based on some unknown an underlying rule there you can need it. Uh, okay, it is, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not completely random, is what it <laughs> it appears random but it isn't because there are rules to it. There's something mm. governing it. Yeah, one, right? one yeah, 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 yeah. Variation in population <laughs> that would be normal to another population could be sufficient to wipe out a population yes. in these further isolated hundred, uh, one kilometre away patches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all I was trying to say. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting bogged down. Long story short, the geckos are doing all right because, you know, this mimicking the nice post-burn environment they like, seemingly. And, uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, cool little gecko having a good time in a heavily heavily altered agricultural landscape yeah cool yeah and they were sort of saying if if you wanted to restore this it's not as simple like you were saying it's not as simple as just bringing back fire because that's just not gonna work that's it's too far gone for that it's gonna have to be a a full-blown restoration of vegetation quality and the fire regime hand in hand which, I mean, well, I'm sure it's doable. I mean, it's not. It, it, yeah, it's doable if you've got like one billion, you you know, Australian dollars, and you can persuade everyone whose crops are there and whose sheep are there to just get lost. But realistically, there's no way, is there? Well, it's funny you mention a number because there's a good paper which I recently read, completely unrelated to this, um, by James et al. in uh, 1999, I think it is. I'm gonna. I'll put the absolutely correct 
reference in the in the show notes, and it was a, basically a pricing up of how much would it cost to actually uh, protect enough land to sort of stay off your sixth mass extinction sort of thing. And they found it to be consider well, not considerably less, but sufficiently less than what is being spent on carbon and fossil fuel subsidies in many nations. That, like, developed nations are paying more to keep fossil fuels cheap and accessible than it would cost to protect enough habitat and landscapes to actually make a difference. <laughs> oh, that's gross. And it was, it's a fantastically like detailed uh, bit of work they did. Everything's priced up. It's not just like a single cost sort of thing. They've broken it down over time to maintain it and to keep these areas protected and stuff. And it's it's well thought out and it's well worth a well worth a read. If you ever feel like this isn't doable and you can't protect these things, it is doable. It's absolutely doable. Well, the resources are there. Like a man in orthopedic shoes, I stand corrected. Ah. Cool. Oh well there you go. I I haven't read that. I'll read that. Yeah, let's put that like, link up to that. So um Yeah, I think it's uh, mm, wait a second, let me actually just Yeah, it's called Balancing the Earth's Accounts, published in Nature in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Ah. Oh, nice. Nice name for it. Ah. Right, so I reckon that draws to a close the uh the old spatial dynamics of Nobtail Gecko. I think so. I think that was, it was quite, quite a nice study. Very clear sort of demonstration of how they're using these fragments and how there's a. Well, actually, maybe we haven't because we haven't mentioned that the fragments all interacting with each other. That's how the population sustaining itself outside of the reserve is. Is this big meta population that interacts between the patches and keep each patch tapped up and they're you know, interbreeding and interconnected and, yeah, surviving in lots of patches as opposed to just one big core. Yeah. Yes, and um, <clears throat> what's the proper phrase for that? They had, the, they had a hilarious name, which I was like, what? That seems so obvious, but that's apparently what it's called, which is uh, patchy populations. That's like the scientific Pat- term for it. <laughs> patchy populations. <laughs> That's like, hey man, you can't you can't knock that. That's right to the point. Actually, I like it. Yeah, it does make a nice change. Yeah, it does make a nice change. Um, yeah, cool. So yeah, Nephera stellatus and their patchy populations in an agriculturally dominated landscape in Australia. Yeah, cool, cool. So paper number two, I'll let you go. I'll let you introduce it. I introduce the last one. Yeah, so this is uh, Webb Pike and Shine, two thousand eight, population ecology of the velvet gecko. Adura lucerae in southeastern Australia, implications for persistence of an endangered snake. Australicology. Yeah, so slightly different type of gecko. And actually, I say Adura lucerae, I think it's now been updated to yeah. Amalosia lucerae. Yes. Right? Yeah? Yeah, Oliver et al. 2012. There we go. Both kinds of DNA. Oh, that's the best type. You always got to be looking for those studies with both types of DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they had mitochondrial nuclear sequence data. Yeah, 
they put it into Amelosia with three other skinny little geckos. Nice. Yeah. Amelosia makes me think of custard. Yeah, Amber- Ambrosia. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Especially written down. It's like, oh, God, advertising, eh? Mm. Custard gecko. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Delicious. None of that powdered gecko nonsense, mate. I want it out of a can. Oh, no. Straight out of can. Just pour your custard gecko right out. <laughs> Lap them up. And, uh, <laughs> that's plenty. Have them with some crumble. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, mate. Hot crumble, cold gecko. Mm. Delicious. Right, anyway, so the endangered snake the title refers to is Hoplocephalus bungaroides, a.k.a. the broad-headed snake, a.k.a. the flat-headed Californian king snake looking a lapid guy. <laughs> so, not really a king snake at all. No. Yeah, and the reason that the uh, Hoplocephalus bungaroides is referred to in the title as endangered is because the IUCN have classified it as vulnerable. And, and it also has a funny name. It does have a funny name. Yeah, <laughs> it does have a funny name. It's got a silly name. Uh, it just sounds so... Ele- just unelegant. <laughs> I know. It's a bit unfortunate, really. Hoplocephalus. Oh, dear. And, uh, yeah, the premise of this paper, the reason that the velvet gecko is important to the, uh, we'll call it the blunt-headed snake, or broad-headed snakes. Blunt-headed is a different thing. Um, it's numerous different things. The premise of the paper is that it's important to not only conserve the species which is of conservation value, i.e. the broad-headed snake, but also the one, also conserve the resources upon which it relies, which in this case is velvet geckos, which, as we said, are uh, Amelosia lesseri, because 77% of the food that juvenile broad-headed snakes eat are these particular velvet geckos. See, I love this as a principal thing, as you're coming in and you're thinking of the, the ecosystem or food chain, whatever, as a whole to conserve, and not just doing a target species as such, but thinking about how this animal's surviving and living in its environment and identifying um, the need to understand lots of different aspects and lots of different animals to protect one. I yeah, love that it, as, a, as a concept and principle to go by and a, and a conservation you know, goal. It's, it's not just targets. Yeah, and it's cool as well because it kind of... Um, another thing which it incidentally does is encourage research on widespread species which otherwise might not receive as much attention other than convenience. Yes. Yes. Oh, no, it's a defenseless little prey gecko. Yeah. They're, in, well, are they? they're like six centimetres long. Um, they're quite yeah. cool, though. They've got that like purple zigzag down the back and then they're like little dots on their sides, white dots. Oh, they're another good-looking gecko, that's for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we should mention as well, this study took place around sort of like... It was south of Sydney, wasn't it? We're still in Australia. South of Sydney in Moreton National Park, New South Wales. Yes. Um, yeah, on a sandstone plateau, 400 meters elevation, western side. So there you go. That paints sounds like a very nice lizardy geckoy place, yeah. doesn't it? Especially in the evening, if it's the western side, you know, the sun's coming mm. down, the geckos are out, the broad-headed death machines are cruising around. Maybe <laughs> I think they're they're nocturnal, so <laughs> yeah, they're still hiding under rocks. But you know, you get you get a nice image. Yeah, and and just off in the distance, you see people with a with a truck <laughs> picking up large rocks and then taking no. them away to put them in their gardens. 
So this, I know. This what, what really struck me with this is one of the big threats to these species are people taking what are termed bush rocks um, for their gardens. I and there's a, there's a Shine et al. 1998 paper that's, that talks about this in a bit more detail, but how these snake snakes are under direct threat from having their sort of shelter and basking sites taken for, for gardens. <laughs> it's, it's a travesty. It's bizarre that something like this would be like a significant issue, but it, I mean, it's surprisingly widespread, it seems. It is a travesty. I mean, I love a rockery, don't get me wrong, but yeah. blimey, I mean, come on, guys. Well, snakes need those rocks. Yeah, they really heavily rely on them because those rocks get warmed by the sun in, in, during the day, don't they? And the geckos and the snakes both hide under them. Um, I, I do apologise for the toke gecko that is now screaming <laughs> from across the car park. <laughs> ben, why is there a toke gecko? <laughs> Tell him to keep it down. Throw a stone at it. I, he's probably about 80 metres away. You've got a good arm. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I'm not throwing a rock at a gecko. Yeah. Sort of savage, am I? <laughs> yeah. Look at you with your your new exotic location. <laughs> oh, see, he just wants to be included. Australian geckos. Where's the Toke gecko episode? That's what he wants. Yeah, well, we kind of touched on them the other day. You talked about them, didn't you? But and John talked yes. about them too, actually. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You've had your time, damn it! Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. So you're obviously not. Yeah, you're in. You're in a different place now, aren't you? Mm. Far away land of Thailand. Hence, hence the jungle noises and the tokes. Such an exciting life you lead. Uh, very jealous. So, um, so the bush rocks are being stolen. Yeah, and the poor snakes are <laughs> having a hard time because of it. So, this crew comes in and decides to do a rather uh, significant and long-term mark and rechat recapture study and try and work out how the velvet gecko's doing ignore the frog noises <laughs> no I'm just laughing at what a mark and rechapter study would be rechapter yeah, sorry I was just being is a, that what I said I'm just being a child I should just let you speak carry on <laughs> so a long term mark and recapture study so we're looking at 1992 to 1995 and then 1996 to 2006 although that latter period no new markings were done right so it was just seeing how persistent the population was, essentially. And hopefully from the mark and recapture, they could get an idea of population size, population trend, and see how that's going to impact on this threatened snake. Yeah? Yeah, they were, they were, they were doing that. And alongside that, they were just taking loads of data, weren't they, on kind of everything relating to this species' reproduction. Yes. Yes, it was a full-on, let's get a really detailed life history done. Hmm. of these guys that we know are, are critical prey species yeah 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 because yeah fecundity is like such a massive unknown in so many species and yeah and like well like you say the, the mark recapture thing you can learn so much from that if you if you can dedicate the time and the resources to going back there long-term ecological yes. studies are like so so good for reptiles um yeah, I mean, the, 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 the time span this has been done over is, is fantastic because you can go from young gecko all the way through to adulthood and uh, get a full life history. Yeah, and th th talking about full life history, some of these, some of these geckos were quite long-lived. 
yeah, what do we have? Mean age of the females was eight point eight point four years. Yeah, and those those ones which were at the top end of that, the sort of eight, nine, ten year old geckos, all the females at that age were found to be gravid, so they're still reproductively active at that age. Yeah, what do we? Yeah, sorry, the max of thirteen point eight years. Yeah, that was the oldest one they they well could confirm. Yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, I I actually got curious about how long a gecko can live. When I read that, I was like, well, I mean... So, so you got one and you genetically modified it and kept it in stasis for multiple years. <laughs> and only now have you unfrosted it. <laughs> they call de- me. Defrosted it. Dr. Gecko. No. No, I just thought I'd have a little literature search, a little trawl of the old uh, googly scholar. And uh, obviously Dr. G turned up some interesting results, as per usual. So, uh, yeah, what happened? I can't believe it just said as per usual. As per usual... <laughs> <laughs> he's too straight he's losing it he's too casual <laughs> yeah um, yeah they found uh, I found that there was a paper by Werner et al in 1993 where it was kind of a review of how long geckos live which is kind of really convenient for exactly what I was looking for and um, the oldest one I could spot on there I'm ready to be corrected by someone who knows better but there was a New Zealand common gecko, a.k.a. Woodworthy Immaculatus, which admittedly was a captive specimen, so, you know, this actually is completely meaningless, but it lived 37 <laughs> years. It's a record breaker. Yeah. 37 years. 37 years. Is it still alive? Because it's probably older now. Uh, As time and age occurs. <laughs> no. I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. I think it's dead. Oh. Yeah. But still. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Cool little gecko. That's an old, that's an old gecko. Yeah, man. Yeah. But these ones we're talking about, back to the old uh, Amelosia, they take three years to take to reach sexual maturity, which is quite a long time for a gecko. They kind of live life yes. in the slow lane, don't they? And that's a critical um, critical thing to find out about them, because if you know that, that goes a long way to helping you predict how vulnerable a population is. Because if you start losing geckos before they reach maturity, you're going to have a less and, you know, less and less productive population and also the bigger time before maturity the more vulnerable that population is if you've got more chance for something to go awry and get these little baby geckos yeah absolutely um yeah it could be quite bad if a new predator comes in which is picking off all the babies but mm. but yeah something else they found which or they is, don't have nice rocks to hide under yeah or if someone puts all the rocks in their garden jeez <laughs> Yeah. But something else they saw that was cool about these geckos was that they lay their eggs in the same place as loads of other female geckos. They kind of have these like communal mm. nesting areas, um, much like the Tokay gecko that's screaming in the background of your recording. And uh, yeah. <laughs> the reason for this isn't exactly clear, um, but they were all in elevated rock crevices. So they weren't actually underground. They were in like crevices above the ground. And um, one of the suggestions is that maybe there's less access for predatory spiders and centipedes or Mm. lots of geckos that all hatch at once, kind of swamp all their predators. (laughs) I love the idea of something coming in, like one of these snakes coming in to eat some geckos. The next thing it knows, it's just covered in geckos. It's nipping at it. It's like a hundred tiny geckos just (laughs) swarming it. (laughs) That'd be perfect. That's exactly the mechanism they hoped for. Like baby sea turtles swarming all the birds on the beach. Except for they're not very bitey. Yeah, that's what I'm expecting. I want the geckos to fight back. Yeah, baby turtles are just lumps of meat, aren't they? 
Wasn't there a second suggestion for the communal nesting, and that's that they have a very precise temperature that they need for um, to to guarantee a good uh, hatch rate. Yeah, it, it and so these communal sites are almost just like they're they're very good, they're very stable, and so it's just a by chance that a lot of geckos use them. And the fact by having more stuff in them that helps stabilizes the, t- the temperature even further. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even still, though, their the temperature fluctuated between like fifteen and thirty something degrees in the in the thing. But it was noticeably, like you say, more stable than um, than than sort of mm. equivalent places where there were no eggs. And also, humidity is a big deal as well. Yeah. Not that I know if they mentioned humidity in this. Yeah, no, they did. I think they did. They did? Yeah. Good. They were saying that, the, like you said, the temperature buffer, the eggs might also help to hold the humidity within the area. Because I guess they're all going to be transpiring, aren't they? Yes. Yes. And it, safety in numbers, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's also, they kind of raised this idea that maybe the geckos return to the site that they hatched from. So once they reach sexual maturity themselves, they go back and lay their eggs in the same exact place that they hatched from. Mm. They didn't have any concrete evidence for this, but, uh, they pointed towards a paper, um, by, who was it by? They pointed towards a paper by Brown and Shine in 2007, and they were discussing a snake, an Australian snake, called Trypodinophis mayeri, which the common name is keelback, arguably the worst common name ever, given that there's like hundreds of snakes with that common name. Um, also, fun fun fact, yeah. uh, one of the few snakes in Australia that can stomach a cane toad. Ah, yes, yeah. I think they've got um, evolutionary sort of leftover resistance from their time uh, with their common ancestors in Southeast Asia and uh, that sort of area where there, where there were boofinids. Mate, you haven't mentioned cane toads for weeks. I'm, I know. I'm I've happy. been very. I've been very good. I've been very yeah. restrained. <laughs> yeah, it's literally all you talk about every time. Every other time I talk to you, so you've been very good. Um, Shut up about the toads, <laughs> idiot! <laughs> I love toads. <laughs> literally, <laughs> chill out, toad boy. No, <laughs> get back in your hole. Uh, yeah, the keelbacks. In these keelbacks, it seems like they imprint on the area they hatch from and return to the same area to lay eggs. A lot of them lay eggs along this big dam. They live in like flooded river iron areas and so they have to lay their eggs on high ground. And uh, it seemed as though a lot of the babies, well, they they proved uh, unequivocally with statistics that they were basically catching the mothers who were gravid and then they were incubating the eggs artificially. And then they were releasing the babies in particular points along the dam where the mothers had been caught preparing to lay the eggs. And what they found was that when they marked the individuals, those same females came back. These snakes mature very quickly. They mature in about eight months. And they came back and they were laying their eggs in the very same place that they were released from. So they, they know then that they're returning to where they came from. But what was also interesting about this is that some of them, they accidentally released in the wrong places. Uh, they made mistakes and they forgot where they'd... Well, no, they didn't forget. I think they just made an error. And they released babies oh, no. where in different sort of subsections of this dam than the mothers were caught. And what they found was that rather than going back to the places where the mothers were trying to lay them, they actually went back to the places where they were released. And so the places they conceived they hatched from. 
And so that kind of proved that it wasn't a genetic basis for this behavior. It was actually that they were spatially imprinting on their surroundings as they came out of the eggs. Uh, that is so cool. It's absolutely mental, yeah. And they call it, it's called natal homing or nest site filipatry. And obviously mm. it's well known in things like sea turtles that I just mentioned. And also salmon. Yeah. Salmon love it. <laughs> They'll go to extraordinary lengths to get back to their, their sort of like spawning pools. Salmon, try hard fish. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. They try. Yeah. So what's what? So what's the benefit of going back to where you were hatched? Uh, it's unclear. In the word, uh, yeah, there are. The, in that paper, they discuss sort of like various um, mechanisms whereby you've got because the eggs are incubated in the same place as the mother's egg the mother was as an egg um the babies which hatch out have undergone very similar climatic situation as their mother mm. so you end up with a, a snake which is not only genetically very similar because they're directly descended but also um their phenotype is very similar because they were incubated in a very similar way so it, it's just this mechanism where the snakes are remaining very similar through successive generations um but it's not they they didn't really postulate as to why they would why they were um, coming back to these spots. Okay, because I'm just thinking of this from a predator point of view, yeah. and I'm thinking, well, it's this time of year. I know there's that good spot. I'll go back there and eat that <laughs> that snake's uh, eggs again. Yeah, you know that. I mean, like, no problem. They're there every year. Yeah, it's very strange. Although, but then maybe just sheer scale of how many eggs enough survive, so it's not actually a significant pressure. That's usually what it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> know what so many eggs they can't eat them all. Yeah, I can't. I don't know what size of clutch they have, but the fact that they mature so fast makes me think they're probably one of those like scattershot species. Mm. Yeah, and also one other thing I forgot to mention was that um, I learned a new word in the course of this paper: vigility which is um, how sort of willing a species is to travel, its ability to kind of go around and disperse. Yeah. And um, the reason they lay their eggs in the same places wasn't because of low vigility, because they actually radio tracked some of these snakes. And they were moving up to 900 meters a night, and they had quite large home ranges of like over a kilometer. So they could have laid their eggs elsewhere. It's not that they live like really localized lives. That's pretty cool. That is pretty good. I really like that as a as a really neat little case study there. Yeah, I <laughs> something man, I, I knew nothing about. Yeah, fun paper. I was completely staggered by it. Like, yeah, just bizarre. I mean, why is that happening? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So back to the old. Uh, back to yes, back to the old velvet tangent. geckos. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> tangent. Whoa. Uh, yeah, egg hatching success in the communal nests was 100%, they estimated, which is incredible. 100% of the eggs came hatching that they found. See, these geckos know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. They're pros. And it's like you said, the, the benefits which come from the communal nesting, like the temperature and humidity, perhaps is the reason for that. Who knows? Well, if they've got very slow life histories, you can expect that there's been some sort of pressure to make sure that that success rate is pretty high, right? Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. If it takes three years before whatever survives even gets a chance to try, they better make sure they do a good job pretty swiftly. <laughs> yeah, true. Very, very true. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's... What else on the population ecology? 
Have you got any kind of anything else on that? Um, I do. Go on. Yes, I do. They they had a they also did a nice sort of growth model to show how how rapidly these these geckos are growing and, and getting big, and it seemed like there was a pretty consistent reduction in growth rate as they got bigger all the way up to their 65 millimeter SVL maximum they found. Um, and it seemed like the was it male slightly bigger, female slightly bigger. The uh, the females are bigger than the males. Yeah, so the females being slightly bigger. Um, but otherwise, I think we have covered pretty much everything they've done relatively briefly. Um, it's worth mentioning that some of this stuff was actually undertaken in a lab as well as wild so it was a sort of combination study where they had a wild population where they worked on for a long time and then did uh, a little bit of work with gravid females in a lab to get like um, numbers of eggs and clutches and, and just general information about how they uh, how they lay and how well they do um, yeah Otherwise, that sounded like a fun study. Actually, they they caught the pregnant gravid, I should say, females, and um, yeah, they just like you say, they kept them in captivity and then uh, waited to see how many eggs they would lay and sort of the the hatch rates of the eggs. Yeah, and I I do actually have on a complete going back to the bush rock stuff. Um, there's a cool study by Croak et al. in 2010 where they test whether they can use artificial rocks to restore the shelter sites for the uh, snakes and geckos and stuff that make use of them. And so they, they go out there and they build these, these fake shelter sites, fake rocks with concrete, reinforced concrete, basically. And um, they found that they had 100%... Um, what's the word for things living in things? Occupancy. <laughs> occupancy um, after after 40 weeks and that's including including uh, a couple of snake species some six different lizard species and of course our endangered broad-headed snake oh cool so not everything is you know it's not all bad news there, there are some some opportunities to restore landscapes even even restoring something that is essentially non-renewable yeah just chuck some concrete down sorted yeah that's an easy I, thing I just I just thought that was quite cool that this is quite a dramatic thing to do to a landscape start putting concrete structures in it yeah but there um, again when you've got like a pretty homogenous sandy landscape taking the rocks out is pretty dramatic too isn't it oh massively dramatic yeah mm. it's, it's just usually when you add concrete to an environment <laughs> things get worse yeah fish <laughs> as a rule of thumb fish don't deal well with it i know that much <laughs> yeah well it starts screwing with ph and all sorts doesn't it <laughs> yeah yeah so uh yeah there you go like they learned an awful lot about the population ecology of gecko and they tied it back in to the persistence of their endangered snake and yeah like these geckos are s slow burners yes yeah, so i think that the, the overall message is Geckos have a slow life history, therefore are vulnerable to perturbations in their environment. 
Therefore, we should keep a close eye on those geckos to keep a close eye on the endangered snake and its, you know, its prey and its primary resource. Yeah, and if needs be, just lay some concrete down. <laughs> well, that would, seems like it would help. <laughs> Wicked. So, uh, I think you know what time it is now. Is it possibly, maybe, perhaps, <laughs> species of week? Species of week! <laughs> yeah, mate. And uh, very much in keeping with the tone and theme of our podcast thus far, we have found a new Australian it's gecko. It's a new type of bear. <laughs> it's a new... T- it's a new type of... Oh, oh, ge- oh gecko from Australia. <laughs> it's a new parasitic wasp. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it's it's a. Well, that'd be quite cool, though. It would be actually, but I don't know. Would it be? I don't. Yeah, it would be actually. Parasitic wasp, are kind of interesting. Anyway, it's not a wasp. It's not a bear. It's not a fish. It's a gecko, and it's from <laughs> Australia. And it's coming from a paper entitled "A Spectacular New Leaf-tailed Gecko, Carpodactyla de Saltuarius, from the Melville Range, Northeast Australia." And that's published in Zootaxa in 2013 by Hoskin and Cooper. Cooper with a U. And mm. yeah, like this is basically one of the most awesome geckos. Well, I say awesome. One of the most awesome gecko genuses, in my opinion, that exists. Uh, the One of the Australian leaf-tailed geckos. They're very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and as A little bit of mimicry right there. A little bit of mimicry. That's a dramatic understatement. These things are right. these things a are, significant amount of mimicry. Yeah, these things are leaves. Um, yeah, and like bordering, this, bordering obsessive. Yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. Actually, it's too far. But they are all of the family Carpodactyla day, same as the nodtail geckos we were discussing in the first paper. And um, there's three genera of these leaf-tailed geckos. We're talking about Australian leaf-tailed geckos. I'm sure we'll mention Madagascar ones, but these are all Australian ones. And the genus is a Phalurus, Saltuarius and Oria. And um, this particular one comes from Saltuarius, which are some of the most dramatic looking ones. Oh boy. Um, yeah, Saltuarius occultus. I've, I think we had a, a discussion about this guy a while ago and how occultus is absolutely right. This thing looks demonic. Yeah. It's absolutely long, gangly legs, creepy, pointed face, absolutely wicked looking gecko. Spines all over. Yeah. Leaf for a tail. Like, really, like, gangly looking thing. Yeah. Little hell gecko. They look, and they, they all, most of these geckos, anyway, they look like they're covered in lichen, don't they? Because they either live on trees or on rocks, predominantly rocks. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, they're, they're, the whole the whole of all three of these uh, genera are restricted to eastern Australia, predominantly in the rainforest, although the odd species lives in what's called sclerophyll habitats, which are kind of poor soil, low vegetation, and all the plants have really spiky leaves. So it's kind of a weird type of like dry, sort of semi-forest type thing. Um, yeah, mm. and like I was talking about earlier, vigility. These species all have low vigility, um, that's like one of their characteristics. That you, you hugely can, low, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You, you can have lots of species in a in a very small area because they're not travelling about and they're kind of speciating based on the the group of boulders covered in rainforests that they happen to occupy. Hmm. So, what's the name of our new guy then? Uh, our new guy, which is the seventh species of Saltuarius, is called Saltuarius eximius, which eximius. Eximius. Which is the Latin word 
literally Latin word eximius means extraordinary, unique, or exquisite. Hmm. And it just makes me think think of like a Roman gladiator for some reason. Yeah, that's that's what I have in my mind. <laughs> eximius. Yeah, that's a good film, Gladiator. Um. Yeah, and they kind of decided this is a new species based on some morphological characters, yada yada, and some mitochondrial DNA, which they they cite it as, from mitochondri- mitochondrial DNA, we decided this is a new species. And then it just says, like, unpublished data. <laughs> so we'll just, <laughs> we'll take your word for it, team. <laughs> That's really odd, that. I didn't, I, oh, well. maybe it wasn't, oh, they've obviously maybe got... they didn't have permission yeah or big, yeah maybe it's part of a bigger study yeah like i think there's bigger, another paper like, coming out review of the taxonomy of these guys I, and i would wager they're saving it for that yeah i'd wager that you're spot on and they did put them they did put their results on GenBank though in terms of like their D- oh. dna data so it's out there they just didn't publish it in this paper so, oh so so the sort of the sequences are out there but the differences to other species and that's phylogenetic work hasn't uh, out there. That's the impression I got, yeah. So maybe actually there aren't GenBank records for a whole bunch of the, these other species, so you couldn't do that unless you had that, and that's why it's unpublished. Hmm. Maybe so. Maybe so, yeah. Not that, not that it matters a great deal, because I'm sure it's being done currently, and it yeah. will be published relatively soon. Yeah, but this... Um... Well, see, it might even be published now. This is a 2013 paper we're discussing. Neither of us looked, so... Who knows? Um, yeah, like I said, the uh, yeah, this is species number seven in Saltuarius. Um, they found it during targeted surveys of the Melville Range rainforest, which is on Cape Melville. Um, they also discovered a skink and a frog during the course of their investigations. Uh, this is like a low range of boulder fields with patches of rainforest on the slopes, and at the top there's like this elevated plateau of rainforest, which just sounds like absolutely wicked kind of an environment um, when you say they found found a skink and a frog um i i guess you mean like they found an like a new type as opposed to they just found a frog <laughs> and a <skink. laughs> ben finding a frog is not newsworthy yeah it's a new species okay yeah it's a new species Man, if it was newsworthy i'd watch the news more frequently <laughs> yeah fair go and uh yeah so what else was there about this species? Oh, yeah, they found them. Have we described what it looks like? This gangly little creature. It's no, so strange. No, we have not. It's massive no. eyes, a blunt head, skinny, with a crazy spiky tail. You getting a picture up? Maybe. Ah, oh, here he is. <sighs> yeah, nice striped markings, too. Mm. Sort of a chocolatey brown with what can only be described as milk chocolate markings. <laughs> yeah, the sort of <laughs> hazel hazelnut ganache for eyes. <laughs> oh, God. <It's> positively delicious. <laughs> <laughs> the headshots are just mental, though. They're really, really cool. Um, mm. And they do comparisons to other similar species, and the... these ones are definitely the best. Um. Can also regenerate its tail. Yeah, and the like regenerated species. The regenerated tails look really weird. They're way more like leafy. They don't have 
the the non-regenerated tails kind of taper really dramatically to a thin point right at the very end then there's like a long bit at the end yes whereas the regenerated tails are just like a big flat disc flat disc but with a like pinch closer to the body so it's got this almost not hourglass but uh almost vase like shape i guess yeah yeah i can compare it to yeah, they're weird. And they're small, aren't they, these geckos? What are they, like, 10 centimetres long? Yeah, 109 and 119 millimetres SVL yeah. were the uh, a couple they had. Yeah. Yeah. They're fun, though. I really, I was, I'm impressed with them. And, um, yeah. Such bizarre <laughs> When they found these, they found they only found six in the course of their investigation, and that's enough to describe the species. Um, and this area they're living on, is got a very high endemism of vertebrates. I mentioned the frog and the skink. There's six now. There's six endemic vertebrates in this range, the Melville range. And uh, they attribute this sort of wealth of endemic species found nowhere else to the fact that it's kind of this moist forest and boulder habitat, um, which is going to have persisted for a long, long time because there's always like a nice, cool, moist retreat for the animals to go down into so they can kind of evolve uninterrupted for a long time. Um, if you look at it on a map it's not a peninsula but it's kind of like jutting out and there's sea both sides and so it gets a lot of the southeasterly winds directly off the ocean keeping it nice and moist and sort of invigorating the rainforest Um, just looks like the perfect place to find an endemic gecko and uh, the, the behavior that they described for these geckos was that they were kind of sort of they were hanging around on vertical rock faces facing down towards the ground and the front portion of their body was raised up off the rock and they say this is likely to be a kind of ambush position similar to other saltuarius geckos yeah it makes a lot of sense that something that has such good crypsis is going to be a sit and away predator isn't it i mean why would you expend all that energy developing a rather sophisticated uh, way of hiding if you're not going to use it for both avoiding being eaten and eating yeah right? Yeah, precisely. It's, they're purpose-built. They're purpose-built to hide. Yeah, they're just sneaky. And uh, the other thing which was interesting, yeah. I really like Zootaxa papers. They always tell a fun story. And uh, they talked about this other species, which is very similar, called Nactus Galgaduga, which is... Bless you. <laughs> used that, used <laughs> that joke in the last episode. Oh, I didn't, did you I? You did, yeah. You got done. Yeah, you're getting oh, old, God. mate. I need to come you, up with some new material. You need some fresh stuff. I, I laughed heartily at the last one as well. Um, yeah, but this is another boulder-dwelling gecko, this Nactus Galgajuga. And uh, this one is found in the granite boulder fields of Black Mountain, which is 175 kilometers south of Cape Melville, which is where this new species was found. The granite boulder fields of Black Mountain. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Man. Uh, yeah. And that sounds fantastic. It, 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 I mean, these places just sound like almost mythical. And then, uh, yeah, the reason this the reason this gecko comes up is because they're also highly distinct from their similar species in that they're really slender. They have the long limbs, the big eyes, and the deep head, much like our Saltarius eximius. Um, mm. Basically, these geckos, Saltarius geckos, are kind of just a feast of convergent evolution because they've convergently evolved with this Nactus, seemingly. Um, and also, like I touched on earlier, the Madagascan leaf-tailed geckos, like Europlatus. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, you couldn't find two species which are more similar in form and function, two species, two groups, um, than the Madagascan Europlatus geckos. 
and these Saltarius geckos. They look, they're just so similar. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like you've just challenged everybody. <laughs> yeah, come on then. <laughs> Someone's going to send you a picture yeah. of Lithoglossus molossus. <laughs> they better not. I and, hate uh, seeing those little weirdos. <laughs> if I get a picture of, of a Lithoglossus molossus in my inbox, I'm going to be livid. <laughs> bloated carcass of a frog. Oh, I love those guys. Europlatus <laughs> <laughs> geckos. They're just they're 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 cool to you. Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So, Eximius, Eterius Eximius. Yeah. Exceptional, extraordinary, and exquisite. Exceptional, extraordinary, and exquisite. Wasn't it something to do with their bones? In recognition of the particular fine form and distinctiveness of this species. You're just ignoring me. (laughs) (laughs) What about their bones? I just wanted you to say their exquisite skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) Exquisite skeleton. (laughs) Oh, good grief. Okay, yeah. Okay, we're bordering on lunacy now. Now... Give me a break, it's... 10 to midnight. <laughs> oh man, you stayed up late to talk to me, yeah. Fair. Okay, so we Ben's got to get to bed. He's in Thailand. Probably now is a good time to talk about your fact that you're in Thailand, Ben. We left everyone on a no, cliffhanger ca- earlier. cast that aside. I've got something else to talk about that's more important. Come on, what? Um, so, last time, we, or time before last, or whenever it was, we were talking about how zoos should get together and um, talk about how... Uh, you know, compare notes on how to breed things well and uh, how to keep things well. And by pure happenstance, I came across a paper by uh, Blay and Cote, or Cote, I guess, um, for, it's basically this big meta-analysis, Humboldt penguins, and lays down all the sort of summary of uh, all the best practices to keep and breed Humboldt penguins. Humboldt penguins? Yeah. Cool. I mean, I know, I know that's not a herb, but um, <laughs> in principle, this is exactly what we were talking about and should be done for other stuff. I think it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. There are whole journals dedicated to that kind of a thing, aren't there? Like that whole, um, what's it called? The zoo. There's a zoo journal published by, is it ZSL? I can't remember. Uh, no, there is. Not. Is it is it zoo biology? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Can't think. But that's really cool. So Humboldt penguins particularly imperiled then? Um, I I don't know. All I know is if you want a nice guideline to improve breeding success and keeping of Humboldt penguins, check out this cool meta analysis. And it's I I just wanted to bring it up as a cool example of what we were talking about. And there are people doing this, and it is good. And there it is. There's an example. Sorry, it's a penguin. But um, yeah, no, definitely good zoo science. Big up. I'm glad to hear about that. So zoo um, biology, but yeah, no, but um, yeah, yeah, but zoo science oh, undertaken in the journal zoo, zoo biology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So yeah, uh, other business. I've just got a correction. It's not quite a correction. It's more like a guys. Why didn't you say that? What are you doing? Which is fair enough. Um, Ouroboros, Ouroboros cataphractus, the armadillo girdled lizard that we talked about way back in episode 10. Um, 
<laughs> Way oh, many moons ago. <laughs> yeah, basically, we failed to mention that Ouroboros is an ancient symbol depicting a serpent or dragon eating its own tail. It's the Latinized version of the Greek aura, which means tail, and boros, which means devouring. Hence, Ouroboros, because Ouroboros cataphractus bite their own tail as a defense to protect their sort of juicy, delicious underbelly from predators by presenting their spiky dorsum. Uh, mm. And there you go. I mean, I can't believe we didn't say that. We love etymology. So um, that came from Yannick Wynand. <laughs> Thank you, Yannick. Uh, cheers. Thanks for listening. Yeah, cool. Um, was that all it was? That's, oh, that's I the only correction I've got any recollection of. I don't think we've missed anything. I'm surprised we don't have any corrections from the Vipers episode. We've had, like, that episode has been so popular. It's had 240 listens. Mate, people love snakes. Yeah, vipers do not just... underestimate. <laughs> vipers are like the sexiest snakes. snakes going, aren't they? You know, vipers sell. I think. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> so the only other one was that we were. I think we were complaining about some sort of dragon snake nonsense. Well, I was complaining about things na- yeah named after mythical beasts or whatever. It was just animals named after other animals, but. The word dragon comes from Draco, the Greek word, and that means serpent. So it's like saying snake, snake. So it's totally okay because it's snake named after snake. Yeah, but I would contest that saying snake, snake, is there's a redundancy there. You wouldn't say, what kind of penguin is that? Well, it's a penguin, penguin. No, what type of gorilla is that? What's a gorilla, gorilla, gorilla? Yeah. You Case w- closed. Yeah. No, you've lost. Yeah. Well, it's perfectly acceptable to say gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. No, it isn't. It's stupid. And ratus, ratus. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, but we're talking, rat, rat. we're talking about common names now. You, you, you've sidetracked me. You've subverted the conversation in an attempt you, to confuse me. When, I won't stand when you're down. Walking, when you're walking through some sort of urban street and you see a rat, you don't yell out and go, "Hey, look, a rat, rat." Ah, oh, I feel weak. Right, let's get away from this subject. So anyway, okay. that was that was from Ian Ian Garofalo. Yes, thank you, Ian. Right, so anything else? What? Yes, me apologising for the jungle noises behind me. Ah, yes, go on. And the and the various possible engine noises and <laughs> just general ruckus that he's living in a field station. Yes, and why are you in a field station, Ben? Tell us. Me, I'm I'm helping out with some research on king cobras and their spatial ecology out in the darkest depths of Thailand. It's just stupidly cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Legit, he's a legit herpetologist. Fair play, that's really awesome. And uh, I actually think the jungle noises add to the ambience of the podcast. So, yeah, a certain mise en scène or whatever the correct posh sounding term is whips out the french fair play yeah no yeah it's been a it's been a it's been a like a very legitimizing time for both of us because you've gone out there you're now working on really awesome snake Mm. projects and i've started my phd so yeah entering the realms of additional layer of legitimacy an additional (laughs) layer of legitimacy yeah still obviously extreme rookies but it's cool it's cool that we're actually like fully working in the field now which is awesome yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And I hope it doesn't get too much in the way of, of, of getting these out every couple of weeks. Um, I'm sure I'm sure it will at some point, but so far, so good. 
Yeah, so far so good. We'll, just play it. we'll play it by ear. We were trying to make them. Yeah. We were going to make them a bit shorter, but we've run on quite a bit on this one. So we'll just see how it goes. We love chatting. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So I reckon that just about wraps up our episode on Australian geckos. Um, we first of all had the really ridiculously adorable Nephera stellatus and how they persist in fragmented agricultural landscapes. Then we investigated the population ecology of the velvet gecko and how their kind of um, population and fecundity etc influences the broad-headed snake which is hoplocephalus bungaroides and how they're going to kind of survive into the future then we had our Mm. species of the bi-week which is an awesome new leaf-tailed gecko the exquisite leaf-tailed gecko yeah that's a nice little trio of papers quite happily yeah yeah so um all connected to the previous interview episode i quite like that yeah yeah if you haven't <laughs> listened already double billing of gecko related stuff yeah if you haven't if you somehow managed to miss it check out our interview of john mcgrath that was really really fun to do hopefully we'll do more interviews and uh, that's what spurred mm. us to do this episode and if you haven't already read the magazine i hope magazine it's great it's really cool and it's free it is yeah uh so i think that just about wraps this episode up um, if you want to email us, email us at herphighlights at gmail.com. Equally, if you'd like to Twitter us, we're at herphighlights or facebook.com slash herphighlights. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back soon. We're not sure what the next episode's on, but we'll be back. Oh, we'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> thank oh, you for yes, listening. Yes, corrections get in touch as well. We love being wrong, so tell us. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, the being wrong bit's not great, but the learning, the true bit, is the good bit. Yeah, I'll never forget something which someone's corrected us on, on this podcast. That's going to, like, cement in my mind forever. Oh, now you've just laid down another gauntlet, haven't you? Because of the shame. (laughs) (laughs) The crushing shame. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Awesome. Thank you.